Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast which asks which movies are well worth watching and remembering for all time. Every episode, we discuss a different piece of film history to decide if it should make its way into our movie vault. Filled with questions, trivia, and crazy challenges, it's the perfect way to deep dive into a myriad of movies. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a glimpse of what to expect in today's episode. I think it should be noted that though my cameras have been, like, the screen in front of me has been frozen for the entirety of this call so far, it unfroze for that entrance. I understand why. (laughs) My internet knew how important it was. And for what it's worth, I obviously didn't hear anyone's reaction, but from what I can see from the cameras, Mary was losing it. (laughs) Honestly, it's one of my favourite movie quotes, and the fact that Dave, I've never seen Dave look so uncomfortable, so when he stroked his ear, it was just, it was wonderful. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Are you not entertained? I am the heart. Great. I'll be back. Hello and welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast which asks which movies are well worth watching and deserve to be remembered for all time. I'm your host, David Osger, and I'm being a bit more quiet at the moment as all the Well Good Movies crew are asleep. Wake up! (laughs) There we go. So recently uh, we've announced we have more and more frequent guests which will be joining us and hopefully now they are alert and ready for this episode and not uh, asleep like the titular character of uh, the film we're talking about today. So... Uh, let's get to it. So joining me over in VHS Corner this week is our very own Queen of the Scots. It's Mary Munoz. Hello, Mary. I've never been called that before. I think I will keep that title just from now on. That's how I should be addressed. <laughs> I, I hope I hope it doesn't go the way of Mary, Queen of the Scots, however. In terms ah, well, of... what's a little beheading between friends? <laughs> Hey, that was, I don't know, I don't know my English well enough. We need die here, but you know, was it the English? You know, I, we're not going to do it, certainly anyway. So nah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're safe. But yeah, originally I was going to put something like Scottish correspondent. And I was like, wait, we're talking about like kings and queens and stuff. There is an obvious choice here. <laughs> yeah, and I do give off that sort of regal air. I totally get why you've gone for that. It's, it's, the, it's the accent. <laughs> and, and Grogu has been knighted now. So your son is of royalty. It, it all makes sense. So it all makes sense. Yeah. So... Mary, as I said, you're over in a VHS corner this week. How is it over there? Uh, review so far says it's a bit dusty, but it's not too bad. Definitely a new experience to be in VHS corner. It does feel like someone has to clear away the cobwebs. It might require a little bit of magic, although I know that is banned <laughs> uh, in this particular film. But no, nice and comfy. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. And just for like a tease in terms of what we're talking about today, what is your kind of vibe or feelings towards this particular film studio as we haven't talked really about Disney in a very long time. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of, they're not covering themselves in glory at the moment, are they, with the ongoing uh, SAG after strike? I know Bob Iger has come out and said some pretty heinous things about being willing to replace uh, various actors with, with AI and not giving two hits about a strike. Um, 
unfortunately so wrapped up in my childhood viewing <laughs> that that does lead for a level of conflict and this film in particular is a film that I've been obsessed with for a long long time because it contains one of my all-time movie villain favorite movie villains awesome well yeah it's uh it's going to be a fun one definitely a lot of history to delve into and a lot of facts as well so we uh, look forward to going through all of that and yes a fantastic villain so can't wait to talk all about that uh, but obviously legacy is going to be uh, a big part of this film so we need some extra help there as well so joining us over in the movie vault this week we are joined by another agent of chaos on the podcast it is our good friend Liv Mackinder hello Liv hello 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 I don't know if I should be complimented or insulted by agent of chaos but I will take it if you hadn't given us a Christmas film in June, then that title wouldn't have been given to yourself. But, you know, that, considering that was your last appearance, it has to be the one you're given, especially because I think uh, about two episodes ago, uh, Sarah had a similar title because she was involved in the whole Demolition Man saga, if you will. So, yeah, there's a lot of chaotic people on this podcast. So, it's, it's, it's a compliment, don't worry. Exciting, very exciting. Well, I am looking forward to bringing a bit of chaos to, uh, I suppose, one of the more traditional films I've seen on this podcast. Yeah, and I guess in a way it does kind of fit with previous episodes you have done in terms of talking about older films, but films that you would consider like Boxing Day films, where you did that episode with us and we were talking about things like Mary Poppins, you were talking about Bridge Over the River Kwai. So in a way it kind of feels fit in but then in some ways it is very different to Willy Wonka or Thunderbirds. <laughs> uh, all classics in their own right, though. I will stand by that. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, <laughs> we look forward to uh, yeah going over the different elements of this film and everyone's different viewing experiences. Um, but I can't help but feel that somebody's missing. Well... What a glittering assemblance. Royalty, nobility, the gentry, and <laughs> how quaint, even the rabble. Sup, guys? That honestly might be the best two minutes of my life, just so far. <laughs> I think it should be noted that though my cameras have been, like, the screen in front of me has been frozen for the entirety of this call so far, it unfroze for that entrance. I understand why. <laughs> my internet knew how important it was. Welcome, Craig. <laughs> Sorry, we almost forgot about you, I know, but, you know, it, it's kind of traditional for somebody to crash the party when uh, when having these kind of discussions, I guess. I'm sure it's just my invitation was lost in the mail. I'm sure that's all it was. So yeah, we had to do a classic little uh, Sleeping Beauty nod. And uh, I thought, how can I introduce Craig in this episode? Any references to Maleficent? I thought, well, what, what better way than, yeah, to accidentally lose his invitation. And for what it's worth, I obviously didn't hear anyone's reaction, but from what I could see from the ca cameras, Mary was losing it. <laughs> Honestly, it's one of my favourite movie quotes, and the fact that Dave, <laughs> I've never seen Dave look so uncomfortable as to when you stroked his ear, it was just, it was wonderful. The thing is, I didn't, that's the one part we did not rehearse. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the last episode... Very much uh, a massive genre jump here, but we were discussing Dr. Sleep. Uh, and in the end, I believe for the first time in a while, David was able to come out on top in the endgame. Basically looking at sequels and the years after they came, 
out after the original. So David decided to go with his film selection, bringing us into Disney as an era that we've not really discussed to a significant extent on this show, uh, but going back all the way to Sleeping Beauty. So this is the film which follows the story of after being snubbed by the royal family, a malevolent fairy places a curse on a princess, which only a prince can break along with the help of three good fairies. So being a classic uh, Disney animated film, there is no one sole director, but there are a number of different sequence directors. So uh, in total, you have directed by Les Clark, Clyde Geronimi, Eric Larson, Wolfgang Riverman, Hamilton Lusk, and credit for story adaptation by Erdman Penner, additional story by Joe Rinaldi, Winston Hibbler, Bill Peet, Ted Sears, Ralph Wright, Milt Banter, with the original story, of course, being by Charles Perrault, uh, music by George Bruns, concept art by Evelyn Earl, editing by Roy M. Brewer Jr. and Donald Halliday. Starring as Princess Aurora or Briar Rose, depending on which point of the film you're in, we have Mary Costa. We have Bill Shirley as Prince Philip, the good one, not the dead one. Um, Eleanor Audley as Maleficent. Werner Felton as both Flora and Queen Leah. Barbara Luddy as Meriwether. Barbara Jo Allen as Fauna. Taylor Holmes as King Stephen. And Bill Thompson as King Hubert. Awesome. Right. Well, yeah. So let's get into uh, our discussion then of Sleeping Beauty, all about its history, its legacy, uh, the animation, the story, our experiences with it. Um, this being a film from 1959, like other discussions we've had recently, whether it be films that we're talking about, which are from this era like the 50s from the past or films like Doctor Sleep in which you know it has a lot of legacy behind it because of what it's based on or what it is proceeding and I guess this kind of is a bit of both in some ways because this film is very much helped by the legacy of the Disney studio and Walt Disney himself and the films that came before it such as Snow White, Cinderella, this is a very well-known film and it's kind of blueprint and it's kind of look and style is felt throughout so many aspects i think of pop culture but also the theme parks of disneyland disney world etc um but also this original story like many disney stories originates from you know classic fairy tales etc uh, this one is you know based more specifically on a ballet uh, which was completed in 1889 um, and includes very famous music from tchaikovsky uh, which is the sleeping beauty ballet um, but yeah, Walt Disney at this time really wanted to tell another kind of princess story after Snow White and Cinderella. So Mary, you've said about how this was, you know, a favorite of yours uh, growing up. You've looked a lot into the kind of history and, you know, the influences of Sleeping Beauty over the years. But before we get into your sort of memories, etc., can you give us a bit more context as to what was the thinking behind going into this film, its production and how it was made and, and why it was made the way it was? Sure. So I think Walt Disney actually first considered making this back in, I think it was 1938, but for whatever reason, the project didn't get off the ground. And he then revisited it back in 1950. And obviously there's a huge gap between 1950 and its release date in 1959, which should tell you that there was a lot of problems and delays in actually getting this project off the ground. It came, so I think it's the 16th feature film for Disney, and it came sort of off the back of um, Cinderella in 1950, Alice in Wonderland in 1951, Peter Pan in 53, and Lady and the Tramp in 1955. But for whatever reason, production was constantly bogged down. It was plagued by delays. 
And actually, it ended up costing Disney $6 million to produce, making it the most expensive animated feature for the studio at that time. And surprisingly, it only grossed just over $5 million at the box office, so it was essentially a flop. It's only in re-releases, I think in the 70s and then maybe in the later 90s, that it actually started to gain a bit of momentum and gain an audience as well. And it's a shame because Disney at the time wanted to go out of his way to tell a different kind of princess story. That was what he said. He wanted to make it different from Snow White and Cinderella. And for whatever reason, it just didn't land with audiences at all. So although it had the sort of brilliant foundations of the well-known ballet and the well-known fairy story, it actually didn't perform the way it was expected to. So despite the fact that it's often seen as, you know, one of the biggest and best in the Disney canon, it actually didn't perform well at the time. And there was a sort of element of perhaps that the princess story wasn't the way to go anymore and should they continue telling these types of stories and actually on reflection it could have been a uh, an animated film that took the studio down a different route because of the the failure it essentially had so it's interesting reading up on that because I look back and I just think it's so lavish, it's so beautiful to look at, but it was just completely plagued with problems from the offset. I mean, we're talking 20 years really to get it off the ground properly and then box office flop, which is just not what you think when you think of Sleeping Beauty. No, and I think in some ways it is classic of a lot of Disney, especially when the man himself or whether through the studio tries to be more experimental. And I think what has always drawn me to the studio and the fact that obviously it it plays so heavily on the childhood of people who grew up in the 90s but i think that was a big part of people's childhood especially because you had the kind of the vault you know not the movie vault the disney vault at that time which you know has now been opened essentially and is everyone can see it on disney plus and obviously there's a lot of people out there who actually are like maybe you should go back to that you know for all their failings and stuff you know strikes aside regardless of that i think that that adds to the kind of like the magic and the formula of Disney of having these kind of like, you know, treasured items, which, you know, they re-release every few years. And as you said, Mary, that is what eventually made Sleeping Beauty more profitable. And I think it's what made people like us see that film when we were young, whereas like other films that might come out in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, they weren't released when we were growing up. So what was the likelihood of us seeing those films? And Disney really has always been the kind of exception for that in which you are more likely to see something from the 50s, 60s, 70s because of that strategy they've had of sort of, you know, re-releasing them. And I guess to some extent now their remakes are kind of like a version of that. But I think what I find fascinating about Disney is their kind of their eras. And it's not like any other film studio because it's it's like a film studio has kind of gone, well, this is, you know, our cinematic universe, if you will. These are the types of films that we're going to make. And they're all going to have like, you know, similar themes and similar styles and similar ways of being influenced or adapting stories. And you can really see how they change through the eras. You can see how like in the 90s that you had this Renaissance era, you can see how in the 80s things got more dark and they were maybe going through more financial difficulties. And maybe that's happening a bit now because again, they're sort of facing the the troubles of social media and all these other things. Um, But I think really when you look at Sleeping Beauty, especially when you look at after it, the fact that you had films like 101 Dalmatians, Aristocats, there's very much a difference of like, oh, scale back the animation. And as much as people, you know, love films like 101 Dalmatians, it's undeniable there is a massive difference in the quality of animation with with that film. Um, and I think that that is what's fascinating is that it reminds me a lot of when you look at the history of something like Fantasia as well, in which Walt Disney's like, 
I want to have this very kind of experimental story. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to tell it. And then afterwards going, oh, well, that costs us a lot of money. And actually people weren't as into it as we thought. But I think that, you know, us kind of creative lovers and people who grew up with Disney can appreciate it now and say, well, you know, thank God for that because we are going to see people's creativity brought together. And it's a great thing about animation. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, if you look at, um, so again, part of the reason the production was held up is because usually Disney at that point were recycling pieces of animation. So literally just swapping in a head or, you know, a slightly different background. And he didn't want to do that for this. He wanted to create something completely from scratch, which we can obviously see in the beautiful artwork. It's like nothing else. It doesn't look like anything else. It doesn't feel like anything else. And we're obviously looking back at that now and appreciating it. But at the time, it just must felt like a money pit because the animators were getting fed up and they and they were bored and they were sort of, you know, protesting against having to redo stuff. And then they decided that, okay, well, we'll give you this project from scratch. We don't, you know, don't get bored. Don't, you know, just recycle the, old, the same old, same old. But it just completely spiraled. And actually, I think when you do look at the likes of, you know, as you said, 101 Dalmatians, one, it's moved completely away from the princess narrative because now we're into the 60s and actually that whole damsel in distress thing probably isn't flying sort of culturally and socially as well. But yeah, you can see that the animation, as much as I love 101 Dalmatians, is a complete step down from... I mean, you look at this and it's like looking into a painting. So, and then you look at 101 Dalmatians and it's just not anywhere in the same league. But it is interesting that almost similar to Fantasia, tried to do something experimental, tried to give the animators what they wanted in terms of not being bored and not reusing stuff. And actually it just became a bit of a disaster. So it, it was interesting reflecting on that because as I say, I've always loved this film and I just always thought it was lovely to look at. But then when you actually sort of delve into how long it took and because obviously as well, they were capturing live action, um, like actors performing in the role so that they could have that as a reference point and that just slowed everything right down and took it, it took much longer for everything to be finalized you can kind of understand why it's become this sort of almost like a sort of crazy passion project and I just sort of in my head I'm imagining Disney going no we must keep going with this and I really like this idea and the animators being like I could get paid <laughs> the same to go and join another studio and not have all this hassle. But it did seem like he was so determined to drive this project through and to, and to sort of give the world his version of this this story. Yeah, and I think very much it's uh, a lot of what, it's again response to other films and that's why I find it interesting in terms of like a timeline because you can look at other studios, but obviously there's always creatives changing. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bit like Pixar in some ways in, in the sense that, you know, this the same studio and they're telling similar stories and obviously them being part of Disney helps that. Um, but with other studios, it is usually different production teams, different directors and, you know, different people behind the scenes. Business people are always changing. Whereas Disney, again, it tends to have like, you know, a long tenure of people who work on these things um, and sort of raise, you know, rise through the ranks, like you said. And I think the one, as you said, you can see the differences with the princess narrative you can see how disney has kind of made something like cinderella snow white said i want to do that again but i want to make it different and you can tell watching this film compared to snow white and cinderella that he wants to cut out more of the antics he doesn't want as much of the cuddly animals you know jumping around and you know like this spend half an hour with some mice you know there's not as much of that it's more focused on human or human-esque characters in the sake you know uh, the instance of the fairies so I think that that is interesting in terms of that change, but also his dedication to animation. I mentioned Fantasia, but also I think Mary Blair is a big one to mention because I think he said that he was always disappointed that her concept art wasn't realized into the films that they were making. So she was a big part of films like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland, you know, the 
picture I think she did of Cinderella's castle was like one of his favorite images um, and inspired a lot of what came later and what happened in the parks, etc. Um, but the fact that her work and her kind of like style of these like kind of like soft and roundish and, you know, so more elaborate uh, abstract designs were making it into the final piece. So he wanted to do that here with Sleeping Beauty as well, I think is really interesting. The fact that he said, you know, Hugh is almost an artist and I want this artist to sort of take charge. And sometimes you see with different projects and stuff in which that either goes, you know, very badly because other people don't sort of like quite get on the, you know, the the vision uh, with them um, or it can kind of like encourage creativity from everyone. I think with Hugh, they are lucky in the sense that the animators were so involved in the process that they were able to still have their Disney style with the characters and they do blend quite nicely, I think, with that kind of tapestry stained glass window look because they've still got a bit more of the rigid designs on the clothes and stuff like that, the beards and the hair. But there's still enough of a Disney look to kind of make the animators still like, oh, I'm still doing you know this animated piece, etc. So I think the films around it and the influences of why Disney did this is, like you said, maybe just as, as fascinating. Um, in terms of like our memories then, uh, Liv, you were saying before about you had an interesting experience with this because it was one that you thought you remembered, but actually on rewatch, maybe you were overlapping with other Disney films and you kind of saw it in in fresh eyes. Yeah, it's an interesting one because what I remembered from it were what I describe as the violent moments. So things like Maleficent's entrance, um, Philip out with his sword, uh, these kinds of really intense things. But I remembered them going on for a lot longer, being a lot more dramatic, being a much larger portion of the film and that kind of thing. And there are so many iconic moments that I completely forgot about and I know I must have watched this film very regularly up until I was around 10 and it just disappeared from my mind but I suppose as a child you're probably more likely to remember the scary bits so perhaps that's what it is I don't know it's interesting though ironic even because what you were saying before about them doing something different my theory is that one of the reason it flopped is because it is both a romance and a kind of action-y horror in a way. And those are kind of targeting two different audiences. And it in the end, it targets neither one. But in doing this, I think they made it so much more memorable in the long term. Because I do remember those iconic scary moments, even though I don't necessarily remember as much of the rest of the film until I rewatched it. So it's, I suppose it's pros and cons in doing that. Yeah, no, it was very strange. As Mary said earlier, I, I guess going into the 60s, things are changing a lot. And if you look at films from, you know, 1959, whether it would go into like 1960 or not in terms of the what was considered this box office, etc. But you do have something like Ben-Hur is like, the, you know, the biggest film. But then you have things like The Shaggy Dog from Buena Vista, which is essentially Disney. So again, very much different vibes of, you know, comedy. And then you've got things like North by Northwest, you know, like coming into the... Um, and, some like it hot you know so again there's very much a f- more focus on comedy or if you're having an epic make it you know very epic or make it you know a, a thriller in the case of something like hitchcock so- sorry just to double check so sleeping beauty and north by northwest came out in the f- same year yeah <laughs> it's 1959 just a secretly based years for film possibly but yeah i think as you said mary maybe at that time that the princess thing was still kind of dated even at that time and i think now we can look at it more rose-tinted glasses and what i think is interesting which ties in with 
you know, what I remember of it when I was young was I didn't own it as like the official video. I think there was certain Disney films that would be like, yes, you know, I will buy that or my family will buy it. My parents would buy it for me. And then there were certain like maybe B-level Disney films that would be like, we will record that off the television. And I remember Sleeping Beauty and that tended to maybe happen a bit more with like some of the princess ones. I think I owned Snow White maybe because it was more of a legacy thing, like, oh, the first Disney film. Um, and I remember that one watching it and there was a kind of like behind the scenes feature, like at the end of it, etc. But Sleeping Beauty, I remember more because it was like a recording of it. Um, and I remember like that end dance sequence and it was almost like, you know, when the credits kind of go to the side and then like the little box of like up next you know I remember something like that happening but I remember watching it a lot and because you kind of think of that vibe of like oh you know this you know this long forgotten kind of like vibe of movies and you know singing and dancing and princesses and I think even as a young kid you can kind of get invested in that and sort of get swept along with the narrative and and the vibes of that which again maybe in 1959-60 was kind of like oh well this is old hat but when you're watching it then in the 90s or something you're like oh you know this a wonderful time but you know you don't have the context of what it was actually like maybe at the time it was released but for what it's worth our household was the same except that what you deem as a well i'm saying my parents would have recorded it so maybe their opinions (laughs) yeah so we had sleeping beauty on uh, video our our recorded straight from tv was sword in the stone mary you said this you know was a big one from your childhood what was specifically then with this film do you remember and, and why is it connected with you so much so i think this is the first film that i realized that i wanted to be a Disney villain, not a Disney princess. (laughs) I think I never wanted, you know, to be rescued by a prince or anything like that. I saw Maleficent enter in a sort of, you know, thrash of lightning and the green smoke. And she had these fabulous cheekbones and that beautiful transatlantic accent that all Disney villains seem to have. And I was like, I want to be her. I like her (laughs) better than the princess. And to be honest with you, the more I've watched it growing up, the more I just think, yeah, I probably would be that petty to put an entire kingdom to sleep just because I was slightly annoyed that I didn't get an invite somewhere. I like this. I like the fact that she's just really angry. And as I say, when you watch it as a child, it's it's the spectacle, it's the colours, it's the luscious soundtrack, it's the sort of drama and the sort of horror elements to it. Because as a child, even seeing Maleficent sort of uh, transform into the big dragon, that was quite scary, I seem to remember. But you watch it as an adult and, you know, you look at, you look at it slightly differently or maybe it's just me I watch it and go there's a lot of sexual tension between Prince Philip and Maleficent here actually I don't think he's that interested in Aurora there's a lot of chains and whips going on in Maleficent's dungeon but that's just my reading of it and yeah it's just always been a classic I have the special edition of it even as an adult which is out and display all the time and as I say it just for me was the turning point where I was like I'm not interested in princesses I like the bad guys yeah I think it's it's like you said, regardless of whether you're into the the romance or the pr- princess stories, I think even with something like Beauty and the Beast when I was younger, I remember that one being one which I kind of watched and would be like, yeah, you know, this is fun. I could appreciate a lot about it. But, you know, I wasn't swept up by the kind of like, oh, she's transformed him, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I think when as I go grew older, I saw gr- gained a lot more respect for it because of how impressive the music was and the script and the animation and that kind of stuff. Whereas... Again, like when I was young, something like Aladdin, you know, Lion King, Oliver and Company even, um, and maybe something else which is kind of like, you know, going for the kind of Sleeping Beauty effect of like, oh, well, let's try something fantasy-like 
uh, and see how that goes was The Black Cauldron. I remember having that on video, which is, again, a very famous kind of like failed Disney movie. Um, but I remember watching that one a lot as a kid because I liked, you know, medieval stuff and swords and knights and all that kind of stuff but again with sleeping beauty it is one that always was ingrained in my mind because i think a similar thing it was more you know the dragon like we said but maleficent's entrance i really remember that and you're right mary now i think about it i remember being really creeped out by that scene where aurora is uh hypnotized by the spinning wheel where she has to go and sort of touch it and it's that music the doo 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 and she's like entranced by it i remember that being yeah, quite like, scary theme. so that was yeah, quite scary that's, a brilliant, as a that's one of the best scenes in the entire film i absolutely love that and there's just so many like visual things which i'm sure we'll get into but yeah i think the visuals of it the music all of it kind of saw like really ingrains and sticks with you and it's just kind of like a very enjoyable film on number of levels so again whether you're into princesses or whether you're into like you know, medieval stuff and knights and dragons and all that kind of stuff or the music or art. There's something there for everyone in some way, I think. Um, and I think that's why it, it becomes embedded in in people's brains so much. And I think Maleficent, as you said, is also a big part of that. You know, her legacy, you know, has been massive. Whenever they have the collection of villains, you often see T-shirts as uh, Mary is repping right now and, and different costumes and stuff for her. They often do like Disneyland and Disney World. I know they do like Halloween time. They'll have like the villains come out and do a show and she's always there. You know, it was one of the lead ones, etc. And it is because you watch this performance in this film and they gazette Eleanor Audley. It's just such a powerful performance and just that kind of, like you said, the entrance and the visuals um, really sticks with you. And, and yeah, she does you know, I won't say like tops all of the other characters, but she does stand out as one of the best parts of this film, definitely. Um, but also I think even like the fairies to an extent, you know, it's it's that classic thing of Disney, like focusing on the side characters in some ways. But as a child, I remember being like, why are we spending so much time with these kind of assistant characters? You know, what kind of like, you know, the, the wizard type characters as somebody who grew up on Star Wars, you know, you you are used to your Luke Skywalker. This is the main character, etc. Whereas Disney quite often was like, no, 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 spend time with like these three randomers. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and I think there's something about that even when you're young in which you're like, oh, you know, it's not the norm, but you're kind of entranced by it, I guess. You know, you are, it's something different. And it's kind of Walt Disney's effect of kind of like giving you something which is a bit creatively more experimental in a way. See, for me, they were just the main characters of the film. I know that, Obviously, Sleeping Beauty is the title character, but I think it's a lot easier to go into this film just going like, no, this is the story of like free fairies who who basically try to avoid an entire kingdom being completely screwed up um, because everything's from like sort of main their perspective. It's their actions that save Aurora in the first place. It's their actions that make sure that she doesn't uh, doesn't die it's their actions that raise her. It's their actions that help Prince Philip. So I got really annoyed a few years ago. Uh, fun fact, uh, it is the 10-year anniversary. This I promise you this is related, so don't cut me off. <laughs> it's the 10-year anniversary of the Pokemon X and Y games, and that is famous for uh, introducing the fairy type, which controversially, and by that I mean I hate it, uh, are immune to dragons. And I raged on the internet going... In what media do you ever see a fairy beat a dragon? And the only example that somebody came up with was Sleeping Beauty. And I was like, no, they enchanted a sword. So that argument should be still... Anyway, regardless. So yeah, it's obviously their actions again in that, situa uh, in that situation just showed that 
they were just the ones constantly doing things. Um, so that's why I just sort of got into that. This is my favorite of the classic Disney films. Just outright is my favorite. But then where does it come when you're talking more modern Disney then, obviously? If is Walt alive? Yes, it's classic. Is he dead? It's modern. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, how does it compare with some of your more your favorite, more modern Disney films? Do you sort of separate them in your mind? I mean, I kind of have to, right? Because I don't, I don't watch a film like this specifically on narrative because I think we'll probably end up getting into discussion. But if you look at this film on like a somewhat narrative level, as you do for like a lot of classic fairy tale based films, things can fall apart at the seams quite, quite quickly, especially considering that if, because one thing I've often talked about is the way in which you evaluate films with regards to modern sensibilities. There are a lot of things in this film that if they were made today, I would just be like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. You shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, um, completely agree with that. There was a couple of times where I was like, oh, don't remember that line of dialogue from, you know, and you're, you do kind of wonder because how they talk about sort of, um, fairy tales being bad for women in particular because if you hear these stories as a as a young girl you grow up and you expect that you know all your good for is basically finding yourself awesome. there was a couple of lines in this film where I was like wow you would not get away with saying that now and it was very misogynistic and I just do not remember that whatsoever there's an entire scene which is two guys drinking eating talking about how the how the one son is going to essentially bone and impregnate the daughter yeah they talk about her being their most treasured possession and I was like I'm sorry I but again I maybe I don't know maybe I was just a feminist from the offset but I just don't remember that being oh, the no, case I, vi- I vividly I remember that to. scene well I think that that's the thing I think one is tapping into partly obviously one the attitudes of the time of production but in some ways as well it's the kind of what you see in Game of Thrones, etc. It's always, you know, my lineage and my daughter will marry this person. And, and you know, women were seen very differently in the 14th century in which, like, this film is... And yet they place. see themselves as quite progressive. They go, well, it is the 14th century. A prince shouldn't have to marry a princess. If you he should have the ability to marry whichever peasant yeah. he finds. So it almost as if, like, Disney is kind of trying to be edgy at that time, being like, oh, it's the 60s, 50s, you know, in which, like, yeah, people have a choice. But again, that was still not <laughs> nearly as progressive as we are now. But, yeah, I, th- I think, obviously, there's that idea that some people will say, you know, they don't want to show their children certain Disney films and they don't want to teach them certain narratives. But I guess, one, there's always the aspect of, like, well, it's important to learn from good and bad moments in in certain parts of history um but also i think that there is an element of like you get wrapped up in the story but i don't think i ever saw it as a child and be like yeah that's real life that is realistic i think that there's that idea of something which would be unfortunate i'm not saying this in the case of disney films or the way that female characters are portrayed i think something i felt watching this was kind of like and it happens in multiple disney films which is weird because as somebody who grew up in the 90s you have like mulan or even jasmine to an extent in which they have a bit more agency and even if they do get you know, Jasmine, for example, get kidnapped um, or sort of taken advantage of in some ways, they still have like a bit of fight in them or that they have a bit more character. They don't sort of just, you know, lay there and cry like Aurora does in this film at one point. So I think that that is the one thing that you feel watching this like, oh, you know, there literally is like nothing she does, you know, and that happens in Snow White as well. But I would say it would be unfortunate if people, you know, going forward couldn't sort of see, you know, these kind of romantic films and be like, 
differentiate oh that is romance that is a diff- that is a story it's a fantasy it's a fairy tale and knowing that that is just not something realistic i think as children i think that we were able to kind of see that and acknowledge that um and i think it is important for kids to kind of acknowledge that difference do you know what i mean like there might be people who watch it and kind of go oh i want to be like swept away by a prince and stuff like that which is fine but as long as the parents say well just as long as you know that that's not literally how it happens then you know that that is the lesson to be made I do wonder what that says about, you know, four or five year old me that I didn't go, I want to be swept up by a prince. I want to be casting spells and have really good cheekbones. Like, I don't know. But um, I think for Aurora is, yeah, yeah, I think that was totally like uh, psychologically balanced. I think Aurora for me is a bit of a, you've kind of touched on it there, like a sort of side character because we do, we see it through the fairy's perspective or through Maleficent's perspective. And she doesn't really have any agency at all. She's essentially given away as a child quite literally she's betrothed to Philip and then she's given away to the fairies and then she's hypnotised by Maleficent and I think, I'm sure this is right, I read somewhere that she has 18 lines of dialogue, so for a Disney princess that's next to nothing, so actually as far as agency goes she basically has none but I get what you're saying as well about I think the look of it and the setting not just the fact that it's prince and princesses but just the actual era that it's set in does allow you to take that step back and understand that it is a fantasy piece and therefore not not any although I'm quite sure women were sold as property in the 14th century (laughs) I mean you you say that about the like understanding that it's not real and I feel like a lot of young girls would look at that and think okay it's not real because they don't identify with that person or imagine that they want to be um that kind of girl without any agency but i could name hundreds of boys from my childhood who would act like the prince with their sword running around the playground and say to the girls no you're the girl you're the princess therefore you have to sit there so on the one hand yes we know these are like outdated standards and this is a fantasy world but not all children do not if they want to be the hero and definitely, and unfortunately, yes. How many people are running around with their swords? I don't know which type of swords we're talking about. <laughs> don't, don't, please, you know. Oh, David. <laughs> yeah, you're the one telling me going into this, we need to keep this PG. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is not a PG film. Like I said, on reflection, I'm watching this and going, the sexual tension in this is palpable. Like, there's no way this is a PG film. But that, that... I mean, I also do respect any Disney villain who decides to call on the powers of hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's some bad <laughs> lessons to, to learn from, you know, the way the women are depicted and, you know, like, do they have enough agency and stuff like that? But I think Liv has a good point in the, yeah, that there are characters like the prince and stuff and the way he comes along and even grabs her at one point and is just like, you know, oh, I saw you once upon a dream. And you're like, oh, you know, it, it is a bit creepy. Look, and can, we think... just ag- can we just agree the boys are stupid? <laughs> yeah. So I think that... And look, it's noticed that Liv didn't say that girls thought this was real. She thought <laughs> she said that boys were saying in the playground. Look, I'm happy to say that... I'm happy to say that that young boys are freaking morons. Yeah, either way, you know, both genders are going to source. There's going to be people out there who take the wrong readings from it. But ultimately, I think it's, you know, important to look at this and go, oh, look how we've changed, etc. You know, just on the point of people being like, I'm not going to show my child that film. It's like, well, you know. I'd also argue narratively in some way, insofar as like just the instant meeting of people, this is not the worst one i think snow white is still probably the worst one because do they do they ever actually meet 
No. Before he just turns up in the forest, be like, "Oh, dead woman, snog." Yeah. No, no, because she sees it. She sees his reflection in the well. Does she not when she's singing? I think, but that's it. It's just a reflection. They don't actually meet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's... That's 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 stalker syndrome, is it not? <laughs> yeah. Liv, also in terms of your experiences from what you were saying earlier, that you remember a lot of the visuals of this. Um, what what are the reactions did you have on sort of like revisiting this and and can you? So see some of the the blueprints of this, as we were saying, in some of other animation or other Disney films in terms of inspiration, etc. Oh, yeah. Like, I do think this film was an iconic trendsetter. I, I went through while I was watching the film, Googling a few different things. And I found out, like, this is the first time with a sword. This is the first time, like, where the male character gets a talking horse sidekick, which seems to happen a hell of a lot of a time after that. And then... Honestly, I do think this film needs a lot of credit from how Shrek would not exist without it. So many parallels in there, uh, which I appreciate a lot. But honestly, whilst like rewatching it literally yesterday, I did spend, other than appreciating the animation, most of the time in the back of my mind, trying to work out whether they were trying to tell us it's okay to rebel against your parents and love who you want to love or if they were trying to tell us listen to your parents because they'll actually be right in the end and i still by the end of the film could not work out which one they were going for so that was most of what my brain was filled in for for the whole film that is a good point actually because i was just trying to figure out in what scenario but then i was like oh wait yeah they they're still sort of true yeah like king hubert just at the end being like uh, i'm gonna have to deal with oh no apparently it just worked out yeah yeah exactly yeah Yeah, it's like oh okay the the princess and the peasant girl are the same person great (laughs) super yeah like um you might as well just listen to your parents in the first place he didn't need to call off the wedding his parents were right but i i can't work out if that's what they're going for or not i can't work out how progressive they're trying to be i guess a lot of is is again goes back to the, the adaptation of this film as well is that you know in some ways it's a very small story i think somebody uh, at Disney described it as taking, you know, a kind of five paragraph story and turning it into like, you know, a 90 minute film. So a part of it then is trying to add, you know, a bit more kind of like drama and stakes, um, but taking what is very much a traditional ballet in this circumstance, but often with, you know, these adaptations, they are traditional fairy tales, often very dark, very grim. So there's stuff that they don't want to adapt. They kind of want to adapt the nice bits or change what they originally are. Um, but I guess a part of it is, is through that is trying to add like a bit more lens to the film, a bit more drama to it. Um, so I, I never saw it as they're trying to add, you know, say a certain message. And I think so much of Disney, Walt Disney especially, is kind of what we said is that he just wants this vibe and he wants to get across this kind of like story. It is like what we've already mentioned is the dragon and the sword fight and like the, the artistry of it, I think is kind of like the lessons and the character progression is kind of secondary for him in that sense you know when you look again something like fantasia he's like i wanted you know people to feel this and this is what they like experience they wanted he wants it to be a more sensory experience so you know i guess but it's interesting where you then see again like we said the characters like maleficent and the fairies you know i think that he obviously then has a lot of respect for uh kind of like older women and like a lot of the animators you know apparently were really thrilled in animating those characters you know you see the one who plays flora i think she voices quite a lot of characters in disney films she's like the 
the Queen of Hearts and uh, Fairy Godmother in Cinderella. So, you know, it's an actress that he liked using. I, I like the story that they were saying, I think, about Fauna, that they were looking for inspirations for each of the fairies. And somebody said like, oh, there's this woman that I know and, you know, you've got to meet her because she's kind of like this what you would see from like a secretary back in like the you know the war in which um you know they're a bit bubbly and they're a bit all over the place and they're a bit scatterbrained and they actually went to like go meet this woman and she was you know as soon as he saw it, it was like yeah that's fauna and the fact that they then constructed this character to be like this real life woman i think it's it's not that they're just making them from like archetypes or types of people. They're literally going, oh, this woman is this character. And I, I quite like that. So I think, again, luckily for this film and like something like Snow White, I think that the the cast at least balances out some of the bad representation for the younger characters by the fact that you've got a character like Maleficent, which even the film doesn't even try to kind of rag on her too much they're not like she's a horrible person look how evil this person is you know like look how bad she is it kind of does enjoy the the villain aspect and the theatrics of what she is doing you know like none of the kingdom is there being like oh my god maleficent run away or anything obviously when she first arrives they're just a bit spooked and you know frightened of her and the fairies are kind of against her but there's not this kind of like abundance of like anti-maleficent it's yeah. it's like she's almost a part of the narrative of like we understand you are the villain in the story and we are the kings and queens and we all play these roles yeah the fact that there's no actual call to arms against her despite the despite her doing this right because i think other media they would just be like hunt this hunt her down yeah. and destroy her yeah whereas here they're just like let's just keep aurora safe for yeah. 16 years let's just not rock the boat uh apparently her forces of evil have been walking around inspecting every cradle in the land and they haven't been slaughtered in their thousands um yeah so I mean, my fa- my favorite thing about Maleficent is the fact that they do that right balance of just dignified evil, but just showing, like, will not deal with incompetence. Um, the freak out that she has when when the forces turn around, like, yep, yeah, we've we've been looking at yeah. every cradle, and she's like, every cradle, yeah. and it just starts wailing on it. My favorite line in the film is like a disgrace to yeah. the forces of evil. Yeah, that's what I wrote down as well. It's just the way she delivers it. Like, they're a disgrace to the forces of evil because, again, no other character, like, imp- and that's why I think her legacy has been so much, like, she's the leader of the villain groups at Disneyland and stuff because she's like, I am the embodiment of evil. But again, it's not like Chernobog kind of like, oh my God, like, run for your life kind of evil. It's this kind of theatrical embracing evil. Like, she is this dark witch and it's just a vibe. <laughs> just a vibe. I absolutely love that. I think the fact that, I mean, she lives in the Forbidden Mountain, right? Which is yeah. obviously all like craggy and thorns. And I think they kind of just accept that she's just sort of living on the periphery. Mm. I assume that she just occasionally pops up, causes some drama, and yeah. then goes back to her <laughs> evil lair. And they, they do seem very tolerant of her <laughs> as a character. Like, you know, she, she did just threaten to murder their child and they're like, Oh, do you know what? We'll burn the we'll burn the uh, spinning wheels, and we'll just make sure that we tuck it all away. Not like you know, make sure we get her, get all of her army, all the rest of it. It's just oh, she'll go away for a wee bit, and and we'll be fine. They're all very relaxed about you know this plume of green smoke that's just come into their life and decided to you know attempt uh, infanticide. Yeah, this is why I'm just genuinely surprised that no, because I think if I were a citizen living in that land, being like you, you know that like really really evil powerful woman that like lives nearby that seems to really really care about her reputation why aren't we just doing everything we can to either kill her or just please her 
Like, if all she's she, invited to the parties. Yeah, if all it takes <laughs> for her to not not be like uh, a regicidal maniac. <laughs> Uh, is just a brief invite to, hey, so we've got a daughter now. Uh, you've got a naming ceremony. You're welcome to come. No obligation to come, but the invite's there. We want you there. You know, all hail Maleficent. If that's all it would take, I, I would just do that. I mean, it might cost me like, you know, a messenger because she probably won't let him come back. But I'd just do that. Like, you know, I'm King Stefan. I think the the main thing for me, though, is also like there's always been this, you know, gag of like, oh, she wasn't invited to the party and everything like that. But when I rewatched it, I was kind of like, well, you know, again, I think it is this kind of like she just arrives for chaos. And it's kind of it's not even like the evil queen in Snow White either. It's not this idea of like something specific like beauty and like, I, you know, I must be the most, you know, beautiful in the land. And I think the actress also plays the wicked stepmother in Cinderella. And she again, absolutely does. She does play yeah. Lady Tremaine. So she, there again, a very kind of frightening character just from her looks and the delivery of her lines. But again, that is something a lot more personal. Whereas here, I think it's just, again, she just embodies this, you know, the powers of hell and the forces of evil. And she's just like, there is something which represents purity and I need to go there and just, you know, make sure that I represent evil and kind of be like, nope, you know, like this isn't happening and kind of rain on their parade, I guess. And it's, yeah, it's just the confidence she has. The look of the character, I think, is amazing. You know, the horns with, like, you know, like, it's all wrapped up. The the cloak she has and how it seems to, like, sometimes be huge, sometimes a bit more, like, just kind of, like, restrained to her body. But the pet raven. Yeah, that's great. And yeah. when she, like, first arrives and they kind of, like, go to attack her and she's like, you know, stand back, you fools, and all this. And it's the green fire. And I think I'm right in thinking that a lot of people have said that her skin was originally like a mistake was it that she wasn't meant to be like kind of greenish she was meant to be more like either human skinned or like white or something but i'm like no I, i'm glad that this happened yeah, because you know it really adds yeah. to the look of the character i think it's something that you kind of lose when you see you know the the live action version for example i think that do not start yeah, it <laughs> but i think it's um it just adds to her kind of like iconic look and it's such a you know a visual look that she has the color palette is super well known for maleficent as well and it does again watching this as an adult maybe i'm projecting you know she comes in and she's so angry that she's not invited to turn king stefan have a wee fling did he give her a knockback is is she jealous that he's chosen the sort of cookie cutter blonde wife and she obviously isn't that i mean i think the fact that she's this angry without seemingly any context other than just not getting an invite i mean just yeah, she's just fabulous. Like it is, it's so over the top. It's so ridiculous. Imagine getting this upset over a tiny, tiny wee thing. And yet you would buy into her over Aurora as a character all day long. And I think it does come down to the fact that Aurora doesn't really have much to say or much to do. But yeah, you're just so much more invested in Maleficent as a character than I think the vast majority of the rest of the, the cast. She just reminds me of a meme format from a few years ago, which is, uh, oh, is that your kid? I'm a kill it. Don't you do it. I'm going to do it. I'm, don't you do it. Damn it. I love the scene where she, you know, captures Philip and, uh, she, you know, that line of just like, you know, there and was And it gets me. a bit sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Not something that crossed my mind until you said it, Mary, but I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see it. But yeah, when she's got the torch and again, that shows off the color palette so well. But yeah, she's, you know, there was me thinking, you know, I was capturing a peasant and I've got, you know, myself a prince, you know, it's it's again she is how like, can you not think it's like she literally stands outside the door and purrs the words 
come in and he sort of floats in and then she obviously ties him up with chains it's like yeah. so overt in oh, what it's doing no i i think you're definitely right i think it's just obviously so many other disney films i suppose maybe again like you look at something like jafar and ursula they very much are on their own and often disney it is kind of like the bumbling minions you know you look at hercules as well but it is just the fact that in this instance that it is like she is the leader of this she, you know it is just her bumbling buffoon army that has done this and she is the one that's kind of like captured philip she's the one that's put super beauty to sleep she is the one that's landed this curse she's the one that turned into a dragon so again it's it's just a great you know empowering character and i just think it's worth noting how incredibly iconic it, it is not just visually of her entrance but the fact that she is a character decided not to walk through the very easily walk throughable door and i just think that is brilliant because that is definitely someone who would rather make an entrance and be the center of attention and scare people and show them how powerful you are uh then do exactly the same thing but slightly less dramatically and that has to be appreciated that brings me on to some more of the visuals and this is often the thing with animation is why does everything look so tasty in animation when you're looking at different foods like that cake is embedded in my brain like it's and it's not even meant to be good she's like folded in eggshells and stuff but if somebody said to me do you want to eat this cake like this mixture i'd be like hell yeah it oh looks- you're talking about the falling over cake yeah We're like yeah not yeah. the, not the, the icing not, looks so good yeah not the good so cake good. not the finished one which was magic the like the messy cake <laughs> i was like when i was young i was like that looks delicious <laughs> see for me the food scene that i got was the uh Again, like the uh, yeah. the two kings drinking scene. Yeah. Because I want to know, how good was that chicken leg that he was like, mm, 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 actively just froze it away, despite the fact there's loads of me led off it. But also, insofar as my favorite, like, absolute no-name character, mm, yeah. it is, it's the guy, it's, what, what would you even call like it? Like a loot player? Yeah, it's it? like a, the loot player. Just some of the expressions they give him as yeah. he's secretly trying to get drinks. Which, <laughs> which again, wouldn't happen now in a Disney film, but also... But no, they give content warnings for whenever someone's like smoking on yeah. disney plus at this point but i'm thinking you know some of the f- problems i've had with it in the past is like oh it's like a lot of disney films in which there's semantics and some japes and stuff and you know it takes away from the story and that scene to me always stood out as like oh we're just filling in some time there's some random song which they have um see i just see it as character i just think i think that all of the the bits that are definitely add-ons uh insofar as just not relevant to the st- or not driving the story specifically i just see it's just the film developing a lot of like individual character mm-hmm. granted not developing character in you know the areas that most people would expect you would develop it in so far as your title character yeah. um but i just think there's a lot of like atmosphere and a lot of just genuine like there are lots of weird interactions in this film that sort of made me chuckle yeah um i was just because they went to the effort to make them like one of my favorites is like the the young prince philip when he first sees the baby aurora just the face he does is like this is your future wife (laughs) yeah because i actually every time i see that i kind of think oh wouldn't it be funny if like you know he's like oh and then i'm like oh wait no they actually do that joke and i think again that's kind of like the more modern sensibilities creeping in there on rewatch though i did appreciate that scene more i think it stood out in the past to me as kind of like what are we doing here you know this is separate to you know like what you want the dragon and maleficent and sleeping beauty etc i did appreciate it more this time one for the character animation like i said that loop player is fantastic i think 
because he reminds me so much again of like people you'd see in real life you know those people who have very like you know sort of like straight crooked features and look a bit like you know sort of you know very side eye like long hair <laughs> and it's the fact he's then doing that when like how can i get away with drinking this you know and uh, how, how can i like put this underneath and all that kind of stuff he's just such a character in himself and he's just li- literally doesn't have like any lines or anything so he's fantastic and as I mentioned before, I think where you see the great visuals with like the fairies, I remember when I was young being really captivated by like when they turned small and they went into like that little jewelry box. I remember when I was a kid being like, oh my God, look at that giant cup. And they like walk into the cup and back out. It's just all those little touches. And I think the pink blue thing is amazing. Um, I don't know if anyone has any like controversial opinions on this dress is it pink is it blue <laughs> mary what do you think it is blue for Correct. a longer proportion of the film than it's pink Correct. why is she always in pink <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah it usually in disney princess media she usually has the pink dress but so because you- they sexist as hell <laughs> 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 maybe it's just i don't know does i mean fun, cinderella has i a mean blue fun dress, fact maybe that's years, um years and years and years ago um the colors of pink and blue were gender swap oh. so it was uh it would always be that blue was a very feminine color and pink uh was the sort of strong manly color that's why prince philip's robes are like the sort of red pink that they are um because that's supposed to be like manly strength uh and then it just changed in like the in like the 20th century, pretty much. You know, I think it's very fun for the technical aspects of this film is that, as we've said, there's a lot of fantastic art in this. When she's walking through the forest, again, whether you're into that kind of like, you know, once upon a dream thing, just looking at the trees in that sequence, you're like, oh my God, like that part where she like, there's obviously the iconic thing who were walking over the log. But there's a moment which I saw recognize because when I was looking at the behind the scenes, something that stood out to me about the way that they said that this film was made was they used to work on say a4 paper and then walt disney found this like new like kind of wide format aspect ratio or whatever which basically meant that they were working on the size of like bed sheets <laughs> so it like going from like you know drawing on like such a small smaller form of paper and then go to something so large was a massive challenge for them which they relished in um, but it meant the backgrounds were huge and you can really see that when aurora is walking through the forest and she like walks behind a tree and you're like wow this is really like a pop-up book it's so three-dimensional at that stage and you know it, it really works in in that moment and it looks you know like really stunning really beautiful obviously the beginning the the song of like hail to princess aurora where you see the knights jumping up and down and trotting around i think that always stood out to me as a kid being like oh my god look at that knight look at his like helmet and look at the flags and look how regal and everything looks which has been very influential again to the to the parks and everything like that but what also usually stands out to me is that it's not just the kind of drawn visuals it's also the kind of like special effects is like Maleficent there's kind of like stuff going on there when she turns into the dragon when they do the kind of the what do you want to call it the the gifts when they're given to Aurora and they have those like you know lovely songs and stuff and it's like again it's like you're almost going into this kind of like storybook you know it's like images of Aurora there sat there and they're like you know lips as bold as red and and it's like you see like what almost looks like a night light or something like birds like flying around in a light effect I thought all of that is just so fascinating. It always reminds me of the start of It's a Wonderful Life where the angels are talking to each other and you have the little stars lighting up and then when they obviously go to give their gifts it's almost like little mini galaxies every time um, and I even just love the way the fairies, when they come into the room initially, it's like this spray of glitter. And like, it I don't know how to explain it, but it, it feels like 
I can't explain it without sounding like an idiot, but it's the most sparkly thing I think I'd ever seen. Like usually when you see like glitter in films, you're like, oh, that's drawn. This genuinely looks like somebody has dropped like sparkles everywhere. And it's so impressive. And especially when like the close-ups of like the stonework on the castle and things like that, you genuinely feel like you're looking at real life and not just artwork. And it, it's, it's such a testament to to all of the skill and everything that went into it, that it does actually not just draw you in as if it's a really good painting, but draw you in as if you're actually watching real life. I know obviously we said earlier that it's not real life, it's just a fantasy, but the artwork is so good that you genuinely feel like you're in a, you know, a French stone castle. I mean, I noticed one piece of detail that I never would have noticed as a child because of how transparent the fairy's wings are. But as I was watching it, I realized that when the fairies say a certain word with more emphasis or when they speed up their sentences or when they get excited, their wings flap faster and slower. And that is crazy because what animator nowadays would go to the effort of uh, like matching tone with the wing flaps, which it was just brilliant. Yeah. The, and again, I think that adds to the, you know what fun and fantastic characters they are. And again, it's that idea of you know, the red, the green, the blue, it's all very bold. And I think the artist that we mentioned uh, earlier, um, Ivan Earl, so apparently he was like very involved in the production and sort of, you know, was the one who sort of was essentially like a concept artist responsible for seeing through this vision of, you know, this kind of like medieval tapestry stained glass window. And he had a lot of input then on the colors that were used. And there was a character like Meriwether in which they were like, right, well, you know, she's a blue fairy and we're going to have like, you know, when they become then uh, civilians or whatever you want to call them in the cottage. When she has her kind of like civilian outfit, originally they wanted to give her like her like waistcoat sort of uh, item was going to be like just a lighter blue compared to the then bold blue of her dress. And he was like, no, make it black. And they were like, no, that's like ridiculous. It just looks so contrasting and so, you know, crazy compared to the blue. And he was like, that's the point. You need to give it weight. You need to give it this like depth. And, you know, that that's what they did. And again, that's what does stand out to you watching it is these kind of contrasts of colors and and with the fairies, like you said, Liv, is the, you know, there's that translucent aspect to the wings. My favorite shot, I think, in the entire film is when, you know, there's many beautiful ones. But the one that stands out to me is when Maleficent, not when she turns into the dragon on the bridge, but when she's on her tower and she like lifts up her staff. There's the one bit where she like makes the forest of thorns and you get that like little cloud sort of float in. As a kid, I was always just like, oh, you know, like seeing it just like sort of yeah float in was just very fun and you can imagine that as a storybook you know those books where you got like a little like tab and it moves it along or something like that but that image of her with the light behind her and is it when yeah i think when she turns into the dragon she says the forces of hell but this is when she's on the powers of hell but yeah. yeah when she's on the tower and she's just realized the crow has been turned to stone and she says something you know like you know you will pay for this or whatever but when she's on that tower she walks up to it slowly the light is behind her like she is some like evil goddess she lifts up her staff and then there's that big swirling like vortex above her it just looks incredible like i just love that shot it's just so powerful and so impactful in terms of the colors and the drama of that scene but also the fact that she screams over the loss yeah of her. she's not she's not without feeling this is you know the raven is important to her and in the same way that obviously stefan and his wife feel about aurora that's obviously how she feels about her raven so it's it's a weird 
sort of character dimension that you almost don't expect in a sort of Disney villain is the fact that she's actually very open in her mourning of the loss of, you know, her little sidekick or whatever. And the scream, I think, is really, she has a fantastic scream, which sort of is weaved into her laughter as well, which I really like because it kind of shows that although there is a range of emotions, the sort of darkness or whatever you want to call it, or the sadness, because presumably she's lonely up there, is just sort of always present. Well, there's that great moment as well, isn't it? That looks like something that's just painted. And I think one which they use in the example is when she is like put on the bed to be Sleeping Beauty and they have the blanket. And again, you can see the texture in the blanket. It doesn't look like just like this little additional thing. It's so detailed. But it's that moment in which she like removes her like cloak and she's there like passed out on the floor. And she's like, you know, here's your princess and stuff. It's just so savage, but so visual. So at the same sassy. Time. Yeah. Any other moments then for visuals or characters before uh, we wrap up with any any other notes? I'm going to quickly say that one of my favourite scenes is Meriwether stress-eating biscuits because she really, really hates Maleficent. I can fully get behind that and support that as well. <laughs> she is a great character and I think that's what adds to the kind of make it pink, make it blue thing because even though, again, Branding-wise, we're a bit like, what you know, which one is it? But I think for the film, it's a lot of fun. I like that even at the end, the storybook is still changing it between the pink and the blue as it closes. But it's that idea of them battling between it all the time. And I definitely agree with you, Craig, you know, that they, they do so much as the heroes of the characters as the story. The only unfortunate thing they do is that they let out that the pink and the blue is coming out of the chimney. So- oh, yeah, that was that was the dumb move. <laughs> yeah, but that is it's just such a fun sequence. And you can t- sense that tension there because Flora is very much like, I'm in charge. I'm doing this. I'm the one who's got, you know, the busy body and I've got the ideas. And I love Mary Weathers. This just like, oh, well, I don't like it, you know, kind of, you know, it's it's just again, it's like what I was saying before of this archetypal character that they've done, which is drawing from a lot of inspirations. And I think so much of the personality of the actress comes in there the last thing i would also say is the music um is just how much of an earworm it is how iconic it is partly as we said because of the influence of tchaikovsky um but interesting as well in terms of like blending musical and classical music uh liv i think you said something about like music being stuck in your head after watching this earlier Oh, I've been humming it for the entire day today. Uh, a bus stop, work, walking down the street, just constantly, just the same single line of, of mm-hmm, like iconic, absolutely iconic. Well, I can't sing, so I won't attempt uh, what Liv just did so beautifully. Um, yeah, no, it is. It's a complete earworm. And I think, again, so I think when I was sort of reading the little book that I've got that goes along with my DVD, it said this was one of the first films where they released the entire score, so not just the big numbers. So it became a sort of the benchmark for how soundtracks became released. But yeah, it, it blends the the sort of classical score which I think obviously Disney anticipated most audiences would be familiar with, which assumes a lot about how many people are going to the ballet every year. Um, But it blends it with that, you know, as you touched on earlier, Dave, you know, Maleficent's theme where uh, Sleeping Beauty is completely hypnotised and she's following that just like, it's almost like a little heartbeat, just the way that they're using the music to sort of draw it in. And it's so well done. And yet it also sort of ties in with the the era that it's set. You can hear the sort of look, uh, playing during points of it as well and those more sort of classical maybe like harpsichord elements uh, towards the beginning in particular and actually yeah it draws it in really nicely with the era that it's representing the ballet that it's drawing from but also this kind of like sweeping soundtrack that a fairy tale of this size deserves so yeah I think it's it, it's a brilliant soundtrack and there's there's moments of little like mischief and fun when obviously you're hanging out with the fairies but then you do have these quite serious as I say kind of sweeping numbers which I think it balances really really well 
and also the kind of more like you know sleeping beauty the more one the kind of more grand and uh fantasy but you know uh medieval type you know music but then also the kind of like lullaby almost music you know i think of when they put uh, all the characters to sleep i remember a few years ago uh, me and my friends had like a house party and somebody had sort of like passed out in the spare bedroom and they were just they all cozy and i remember playing like sleeping beauty on the the like speakers because that's what you know they, they were just there, like so cozy but that music goes so well because it's the scene where they're putting them all the, the kingdom to sleep and it's just so like melodic and so like you know a, a lullaby just so gentle in the you know like sleeping beauty and you know it's just i do that. have a question about that scene though Inadvertently, how many people do we think the fairies killed by doing that? Because <laughs> yeah. oh, like the they're all stood on like battlements, etc. Yeah, yeah. And just so you see them dropping down, I'm surprised you didn't hear like the first Wilhelm scream just like being introduced. See, I kept thinking every time one of the people standing up in the crowds holding a banner leant slightly forward. I'm like, okay, the scene after that, they are crushing four civilians with that banner. I also just like, again, you know, go back to the fairies, but the idea of like, oh, you know, we've messed up. Oh, we're so traumatized this has happened. Don't worry, just put everyone to sleep the same way as she is and we'll like, hopefully it'll be fine by the time they wake up. But it's a good solution because there's so many of these films in which they're like to war, you know, to battle and everything is messed up by that. You know, so it's a good solution in that sense. And it's very, again, disney Wait, so let me get this straight. You are pro pro mass drugging of individuals trust oh, you to, if, if trust only you we had turned that to be like oh i'm every time i come on this pod dave i thought you were this like sweet <laughs> innocent guy and every time i come on here i learn something slightly darker about you every this time. is because craig is spinning this thing i talk about a fantasy magical moment in a film and then he says that i'm into like mass riffies uh, yeah exactly <laughs> no i'm not i think that they just did quite an effective thing to put everyone and have a little nap you know in the king he's See, just there napping and sleeping in his throne that's all i'm saying and everyone feels better based on this Maybe they are, but based on this, I think the end game should now become um, various scenarios, and we have to guess whether Dave would choose drugs or war. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Where, what was I saying? The music. <laughs> this entire yes, point. The was music. A... The, only the music I yeah, was talking the, about. The lullaby type music, which is not used for a sinister purpose. <laughs> uh, I think at the beginning, one that even though the Once Upon a Dream is very catchy, and yes, I think that often like pops into my head, and it's very you know sweeping and romantic. One that always comes into my head is that kind of opening. They're like, "Hail to the Princess yeah. Aurora!" You know, it's just because it's so grand, and you know, like it gives immediately takes you to this idea of like, well, probably not what medieval times were actually like, but the you know fantasy of what that is like, and being in this kind of like epic and regal like time with all these like marching knights and different flags, etc. Yeah, and it's such a layered piece of music as well. Like they just note wise, they're just all over the place, and it's just really, really effective. And for what we were saying earlier, is the fact that they don't set up the like everyone hates Maleficent or anything, but it sets up a bit of world building of like the town and the village of like this idea of like hail to the king, hail to the queen, hail to the princess Aurora. It's giving you the idea of like what is you know this world and these rules and you know what does everybody kind of like look at as you know their most important aspects, um, and how does this kingdom operate? etc um so then to transition from that 
to then the music that you get when it's like you know a choir especially within disney like when you get it at the end of something like sleeping beauty you know they always sound like so epic um and when they're doing the kind of like gifts you know i love how the choir just comes in and just you know like is literally like the gift of you know like it's just so they do it a bit gentler than that david i wouldn't imagine just singing straight in a baby's face it's just like but it's that typical disney choir thing of like you know the end you know the sun is setting and the big choir comes in um and it's all bombastic you know i think that 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 is really effective and also as you were saying Mary, I think mischievous is quite a good way to put it. Is that music, which is like, do, 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 do. <laughs> that's a real eeyore as well. So, I mean, I just think all round is, I think is belting. Uh, I I also remember like the end fight scene music quite vividly as well. Um, just especially when it has to just go into like the sort of really like effectively just sort of stabby kind of music, just because of like. Uh, Maleficent and Dragon Form just snapping so much. Mm. Also, as an aside, I love that sound effect that yeah. they use. Yeah, me too. Me too. So cool. The fact they use it for both the the staff slamming down on stone and just a dragon is a great mixture. Okay, take those cassettes, rewind them, and play them again because it's time for VHS Corner. So we this time we did have uh, Laura find facts for us but unfortunately is not able to be here right now so she has passed them on to david so what has she found for us this week well first of all yep thank you to laura filmer uh, another good regular on the podcast for giving us these facts so yeah uh laura has uh, pointed out that princess aurora as we uh, already alluded to earlier has the shortest amount of screen time for Disney princess she's only in the film for 18 minutes uh, and she also has the least amount of dialogue out of all the princesses. So uh, we were all guessing as to that earlier. But yep, that is a fact. Also mentions that the film was in production for seven to eight years due to Walt Disney also working on Disneyland at the same time, which I think is quite interesting in the sense that he had like several massive projects on at the same time. Um, I like this one is that it's the only Disney film with square trees, <laughs> which is something that, again, I think has been then replicated into like the parks in, in certain areas. Sleeping Beauty was the last Disney animated film to use the technique of hand inking cells before transitioning to uh, zeography. Uh, when you look at Sleeping Beauty as a character, apparently Audrey Hepburn's body type and features inspired uh, Aurora's appearance. And then we're talking about reused animation which was happening a lot this time but also happened later on as well so apparently the animation for the final dance sequence between aurora and philip is actually reused in beauty and the beast which is a lot (laughs) of years later we're talking about sound effects as well the sound of dragon maleficent breathing fire was created by using an actual flamethrower which is (laughs) metal as hell we were talking about the music as well various pieces of suchowski's sleeping beauty from the ballet were used as part of the soundtrack uh Prince Philip is said to have been named after Prince Philip, the late Duke of Edinburgh, which is very interesting, especially because I guess a lot of the regalness and the, you know, the pageantry did remind me of some of the traditions we have uh, in in the UK. Loving Mary's look of disgust at this moment. (laughs) I know on that fact, uh, just to add there, um, I read about this and apparently the reason it was named after our Prince Philip wasn't for any reason other than that was the only prince the animators had heard of 
Or that's what I read anyway. Would make sense. Imagine if they were just like, welcome the Duke of Edinburgh. And everyone in the film is like, what? what? Duke of Edinburgh? Then Aurora's eye color changes throughout, changes eye color throughout the film. Uh, for the forest scene, they look dark, brown and black. Yet when she's awake uh, with Prince Philip, they're blue. So almost like, again, pink and blue, <laughs> brown and blue is all sorts of color changes going on with Aurora. Um, at the time of release, as we also alluded to, this was a very expensive film. It was the most expensive animated film ever made with a budget of six million. So yeah, to then only take like sort of like five or so uh, didn't put it in good stead for a box office. We also mentioned all of the film's backgrounds were hand-painted by Ivan Earl. And then versions of Sleeping Beauty have been published by both Charles Perrault and the Brothers Grimm. Perrault called her Aurora, while the Grimm's referred to their princess as Briar Rose. So Disney split the difference and used both names. In Perrault's original story, there were seven good fairies, only three were used in the film. So yeah, lots of trivia there. Some replicating what we've already saw touched on some expanding on what we have sort of uh, talked about and others which yeah we just completely didn't know about so uh mary i guess uh you know a lot about this film uh from your sort of love of it was there anything there you didn't know or anything that stands out or, or you want to comment on yeah, you know, I think the so I'm pretty sure the move from Seven Fairies to Three was again to avoid being the comparisons to like the Seven Dwarfs, etc. Um, I think it, the storyline sort of combines the Pearl and the Grim fairy tale. Like, I think it takes sort of the first half of one and the second half of the other because I'm pretty sure in the Grim fairy tale they do eat the baby. So there you go. Um, and the, the Prince Philip thing is hilarious because I am a Republican. I'm not a monarchist by any stretch. And it is hilarious for me because Philip's one of my least favourite Disney princes because his singing voice really gets on my nerves. So the fact that he's named after actual Prince Philip just sort of cracks me up and gives me the ick at the same time. No wonder there are no ethnic minorities in this film. Philip would just be there on the side just offending them all the time. I was actually thinking when I said that Mary's face just looked disgusted when we said that fact as well. I was just like, <laughs> Mary's like, you know, Republicanism is very clear at this moment. So I'm glad that you <laughs> clarified that. Um, and also kind of maybe works with the Queen of Scots thing we were saying earlier, <laughs> you know. David, is this you yeah. trying to fire shots back as everyone's like bullied you this episode? You're like, <laughs> no, no, I need ammunition on people. No, no, I'm complimenting Mary. I'm just saying, hey, you know, like... <laughs> Power to the yeah. As I say, I, I don't know why, but Philip in particular, I think because his singing voice doesn't match his speaking voice and his singing voice is very like operatic and quite pompous. I don't know. He's just one of my least favourite princes and actually that, it, I don't like the royal family. Well, anyway, so well also <laughs> like when, when they were talking about Bill Shirley and some of the behind the scenes I, I saw of this and everyone was like, oh, everyone loved Bill Shirley. Like everyone fancied him so much and I don't know much about Bill Shirley. But when I saw photos of him, I was just like, why does this guy, guy look so orange in all of these pictures like especially compared to somebody like mary costa who was like you know this like really like beautiful you know snow white skin and i was just like is this even a thing at this time that this guy is like tanning is he like you know a joey essex of hollywood or something like that so yeah i didn't have as good of vibes from the actor in in that sense but uh definitely the uh, the original story there is quite interesting and the idea of how it's changed and there's been different versions of it you know they'd be in the ballet but also the Grimm's story and then like a book version and I guess Disney then has free reign to sort of take the different aspects uh that they want um 
but also yeah technically this film is very interesting the fact that you've got you know the transition to geography um the square trees just being something you know i think quite fun <laughs> you know the, the flamethrower as a sound effect the flamethrower is amazing that's excellent that honestly makes me love that character even more if that's even possible <laughs> Okay, so yeah, we've talked all about the trivia there. Again, thank you to Laura for that. We hope you can join us uh, on the podcast uh, soon. So now we go into the legacy of this film by going to the movie vault, uh, which is for anyone new to the podcast, we like to think of this as a time capsule of memorable movies for someone to dig up in the future. So should Sleeping Beauty from 1959 gain the honor of a place in our movie vault and be remembered for all time? This one, obviously, we talked so much about legacy and sort of inspiration and a lot of love for this film. Um, and But we have mentioned some, you know, more sort of troubling elements. So uh, I guess, Liv, as you, there wasn't as much you remembered about this film and there was elements that you were bringing up in terms of like, you know, the depiction of certain characters. What What's your feeling? I mean, I would joke that if it's in the Disney vault, it should go into our movie vault. Um but realistically, for me, even though I didn't remember that much of it, I have spent my whole life knowing that this is the iconic Disney film. And I could never have watched it. And I would still have it up on a pedestal because of the way people talk about it. And because of that, I feel like it just has to go in. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, Mary, I'm assuming you'd echo those thoughts. Absolutely. Sassy villain, hilarious fairies, and just the most beautiful, beautiful artwork to look at. It definitely belongs in the vault. And Craig? Yeah, this is a hell I'll die on. It's going in. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite clear, I think, from, again, the vibes and everything we've been talking about. But yeah, into the movie vault, go Sleeping Beauty for yeah, just how much is inspired animation, how creatively beautiful it is, the music, the performances, the characters. And as Liv said, you know, this being like, you know, the top tier of Disney movies. So into the vault it goes. Let us know. Do you agree? Is there other Disney films you think need to go alongside it? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're in the Endgame now. Okay, Endgame time. This is a game I simply like to call Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Screen Coat. Okay. So, obviously one thing we didn't we talked a little bit about but not in great detail was the significance of the pink and blue transformation and the fact that the film itself wanted to have a discussion as to what the primary color should be. I think it's worth noting that there are a variety of different films that dedicate themselves wholly to having one singular color as like their sort of dominant color. Um, and what I've decided to do is a sec effectively quiz you all on what those dominant colors might be. So this is a knockout style challenge because there are multiple of you. Yes, that means that Mary and Liv, you will be playing against David as well. David has no idea of any of the films that is going to come up. But basically, I'm going to go for the list. I just want what color do you think is primarily used by the by the director, by the creatives of that film specifically. Um, sometimes it'll be obvious. Sometimes it'll be a bit tricky. The first one I'll give everyone will be the easiest one just to sort of ease you in. Right. Is everyone clear on the rules? Can I just ask, is this kind of like an influential, like this is their color, their choice? Or is this like some sort of technical, like somebody has like scanned the film and this is the most prominent? Or is it both? I think it'll be, I think it'll be obvious, but it's very much like, if the film has a particular color palette when it comes to, say, 
co- like costumes or yeah. just even just sort of the tint that the film necessarily has. Um, but I think it'll become obvious by some of the examples. What I mean by knockout style is that this is effectively an end game where it's last person standing. If you get it right, you move on to the next question. If you get it wrong, you don't. So this isn't a points-based game. This is a who is left and standing by the end. If by the end... The problem is... Go on. The problem is, now you've said that, I guarantee I'll get the first really easy one very wrong for no reason whatsoever. I'm just going to emphasize, if you get the first one wrong, I'm losing respect for any of you. (laughs) Wow. Just to give you an idea of the one that I've just cut out because of the numbers, I've just cut out the the film Green Room. And what colour do we think is associated heavily with Green Room? Orange? Are you? I swear to God, Liv. I'm just glad I've been like alleviated of this whole like roofy thing now. That like all these, that that joke was. Yeah, you're right. I'll excuse your war crimes because of like, these people just not getting basic colours right. But anyway. We need to understand exactly what it is we'll be playing for. And by that, David, get ready to potentially choose your film. Um, what I should say is if we do get to the end of the end game and there are multiple of you remaining, uh, there is a tie break, which will be a different rule, but I'll explain that if we get there. But first we need to understand what films people want to suggest for the next episode. So as always, you have the opportunity to choose your own film or one of your opponent's films. So... Let's start with Mary. Tell us a little bit about your film, how it connects and why you want to suggest it. Um, So this film is from 1992 and it is a Christmas film and it's also an adaptation of a classic novel and it does involve the lead character going to sleep. And from there the action happens. Interesting. So... This is in the run-up for our Christmas episode. We have a film from 1992, which is involving sleeping. I have a strong suspicion I know what this might be. David, tell us a little bit about yours. Yep. Also going with, you know, Christmas as uh, we got the Christmas episode coming up. And I wanted to go with a slightly different type of Christmas film for this one and a different choice I felt throughout the year this year we've obviously had that balance of kind of like a lot of dark films and a lot of like lighter fun stuff Um, and I think that this film kind of in some ways encapsulates that you know it adds something quite you know sort of like happy to something very tragic and dark the film is from uh, 2005 and yeah, really encapsulates that idea of like two factions, which is the main link to Sleeping Beauty in terms of, you know, having good versus evil, but ultimately being brought together. Okay, interesting. So we have David's combined theming Christmas film from 2005. So Liv, as this is our Christmas episode, what summer blockbuster are you going to suggest for us this time? (laughs) What Easter classic will you be getting? I did consider doing such a thing, but alas... I will tell you that the film I've chosen is something that I will stand by being a Christmas film. I will take that to my grave. It is a Christmas film. If anyone wants to disagree with me, they can. It's a 1997 film. And the link to Sleeping Beauty would be that in this film, there is a princess who is hidden away for her own safety and does not know that she is a princess. 
So we've got a narrative link there. Again, I think I might know what that is. But first things first, we need to decide who gets that choice by playing the end game. So are we ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. To, to begin, I'm just going to do a random number generator to decide the order. So, David, your number is three. Mary, your number is one. So we go Mary, Liv, David. Happy with that? Yep. Okay. Mary, what color is heavily associated with the film Black Swan? I'm going to confidently say black. You are through to the next round. Liv, what color is heavily associated with the film Purple Rain? It just feels like a trick question, but I'll say purple, but it feels like a trick. You are through to the next round. David, what film is heavily associated with the color blue? No, what? Sorry. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> trick question. <laughs> Sorry, that's the name of the film is blue. So the film, right. What color is associated with the film blue? Sorry. Blue? Yeah, it's blue. You're through. I mean... Uh, is there a film called no color blue or something like that? So I was like, you're thinking of the color purple. I I wasn't going to choose the color. I purple. think, or maybe it's a blue is the warmest color or something like that. Okay, Mary, what color is heavily associated with the Matrix? Black. Is that your final answer? Yeah. You are out. Oh. What? It's green. green. All the code. Oh no! I just think of black. All the costumes and oh. all the hair yeah, and but, the glasses yeah, and all black. Yeah, but like it's got a it's got a green tinge over yeah. half the scenes. The the coding. Yeah, all the green coding and stuff like that. Okay, I'm going to dispute this heavily, but <laughs> sure, you, you're you're now deprived of a good film. <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, these guys could also get it out. In which case, I've got to then do another round of these. True. So, Here. Liv, what color? is associated with the film Avatar. Blue. You are through to the next round. <laughs> David, what colour is associated with the film Barbie? Pink. You are through to the next round. I was really worried in the first round, it'd be like, what colour is associated with Black Swan? You know, what colour is associated with Colour Purple? What film, what colour is associated with Murder on the Orient Express? I, like, <laughs> I did kind of think you were going to get one like that as well. <laughs> okay. Liv, what colour is associated with the film Cries and Whispers? I spoke too soon. <laughs> um... Red. You are through to the next wow. round. Oh! <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> it made her feel anger. That's where it came from. <laughs> David. Yep. What color is associated with the film Enemy? Oh, God. Um... So this one I actually have heard of. I just haven't seen it yet. I love that. I love this film. The I'm trying to think. What years? Can I know the years? What what year is this film out? Do you know? Oh, I can't. That must be early two thousands. Yeah, I mean it's a Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, film. I thought so. Okay, I'm like, yeah. is this the Jake Gyllenhaal? Ooh. All right, explain. Gray, you're going with gray. 
David, you are out. Oh. So that means that the winner, by sheer, by virtue oh, of, wow. is uh, Liv. Congratulations. <laughs> what was the correct answer then? Yellow. Thank you. Yellow. Oh, I don't. I was between blue and grey. So again, I haven't seen it. Well done, Liv. And a very lucky game. That was the there. most insane win. <laughs> yeah. I would have said that was I, incredible. I also, I'm I, also so was, I was also thinking gray for that because I was like, ooh, whispers or I don't know. <laughs> everything else is gray. I was just honestly, my process for for guessing that was actually what color would Craig go for next? Uh, okay, uh, okay, that's not how I was doing. For for reference, <laughs> I had I had a list I was just randomly picking from them. I mean, I'm getting deep into your subconscious Cause, here. Look, because you... if I just went by the list. Of, by the list, I would have given you a snake of June, which was also blue. So I didn't want you to just think I was only giving you ones that the answer was blue. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last person, it's not blue and you screw them over. I'd just be glad we didn't have to have an argument about Mad Max Fury Road, which they've described as orange. Mm. Okay. I'd have gone oh, yellow I would have for say, I would have said orange okay, for that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think it's maybe at the start, maybe yellow, but then it turns a bit orangey, I guess. Gold. <laughs> this feels very deep to discuss. Yeah. yeah. But Liv, so that means you are the winner, which means you get the opportunity to choose a film. So do you want to go with your film, Mary's film, or David's film? You know what? I'll go with Mary's. It was a nice description. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and by no way influenced by the you've deprived yourself of a good <laughs> film comment, I'm sure. <laughs> and also I feel that this film has just fought, willed itself into the timeline, if it's what I think it is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to be what we both think it is. <laughs> yes, but yeah. of course, we need that confirmation from you, Mary. So what film are we discussing for our Christmas episode? It is, of course, the one, the only, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Yay. Of course, it's Muppet's Christmas Carol. <laughs> so I, I, I'm currently going for a re-listen. So I've just re-listened to the Muppets episode we had. And like just hearing you mention about like Muppet's cr Christmas Carol every now and then, I'm just like, it's a shame that we don't get to hear like a discussion on it and then here we go yeah it's again where it it is in it's a film that is in the movie vault where we've discussed like iconic christmas films we've talked about like the muppets as a whole but we've never had a full-on discussion about it and you know that's just a travesty because there's just so many great moments it's such a fantastic christmas film and mary live both of you are welcome to join us on that christmas episode and join in the fun um, I know when we're talking about colours in films, and I know Mary would uh, maybe agree in terms of a certain item, there's there's a colour that pops in my mind for Mother's yeah. Christmas Carol, which is... Yep. red scarf! It's the red scarf. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many angles you can go down. Green for Kermit, but yeah, grey for Scrooge's soul. It's, uh, yeah, we look forward to discussing Muppets Christmas Carol, such a classic of cinema. I was actually going through a top, you know, it was like a top 50 Christmas films list to kind of look at like, oh, what was, should I suggest? And that was like 26 or something. I was like, what is going on here? What a travesty. Who wrote the list? I also tried to look to get tickets to the like live orchestra version of it, which they're doing oh, in Cardiff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's like, you would have to sit at the back with like nobody like around you that you know there's like only one seat and like there's about seven seats left basically and you're paying like 60 70 pounds just for those like seats right up at the top and oh I'm yeah like, to oh. sit in the car park basically yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> i'm like oh why so maybe next time but yeah uh can't wait to discuss that film yep and well done to live and uh very gracious of you to 
hand over the film choice there. Thank you both for joining us in this fantastic discussion of Sleeping Beauty. Definitely some areas that I did not expect to go down in terms of what we talked about in terms of drug, drugs, drugs and nudity. <laughs> what, what's going on? Uh, I'll just blame Mary. That, that that just happens when Mary comes on. Maybe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you guys. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about yeah a very famous film, uh, which is so influential. And uh, obviously in the year that we are celebrating 100 years of Disney, anything uh, lastly from yourselves, Mary, uh, anything you want to shout out uh, or any socials? Uh, yes, yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at, at Miss Mimi Pees. Um, the Movie Scamble podcast is back recording again. We just did a podcast there on the strikes and how that's affected how we view summer blockbusters. And we're recording our Halloween special focusing on the Anthony Starr and Lizzie Kaplan film Cobweb. So keep a little lookout for that as well. And uh, Liv, anything that uh, you want to shout out? I also meant to mention to you the crazy cinema etiquette that you seem to have in which you took a very peculiar snack to the cinema the other day, which I saw on your socials, which I think you should talk about. <laughs> oh, I have to know what snack is. Um, I made a pot noodle just before I left and I put it in my pocket so the Odeon attendants wouldn't see it and I sat and ate it during the first 15 minutes of what was I what? Oh, A, a Haunting in Venice. Oh good um, lord. <laughs> a haunting I in live Venice. like five <laughs> minutes from the cinema. It's very easy to just have. That's fine because as I said it, I was, as I saw it I was just like, oh wow, that's that's pretty inventive but then as I said it, I was like, wait, where did you get the hot water from? I was like, was there a Costa nearby or something? Did you ask for the hot water? But okay, that makes more sense now but yeah kudos to you yeah, for, I, for the event i do snatchers. have very makeshift snacks in the cinema uh, to the point where i've been that very unlawful person who will refill a, a water bottle with the the fanta on the side oh okay <laughs> yes do not copy me listeners <laughs> cinema workers don't listen to this podcast i was about to say david does the same but no david is the actual moral version of that but yeah anything else you want to mention apart from pot, pot noodle level? oh yeah so um to improve from previous episodes when i've given my uh social details i've made my twitter handle and my letterbox handle match so now you can follow me uh by typing in livy mac at l-i-v-i-m-a-c-k and whilst the twitter is a lot of aimless thoughts the letterbox has now gotten to the point where i've averaged four films a week this year and i try to give at least a sentence review to each so it might be worth following i don't know up Definitely, to everyone yeah. else i would encourage everyone uh, out there to follow you know all the well good movies crew on letterbox uh, if they're on there and the well good movies letterbox as you can actually find our movie vault list on there and our list of films that we have reviewed so you can get an idea of what has gone in and what hasn't gone into the movie vault so yeah well yeah thank you again uh, for joining us guys it's been lots of fun uh, we hope to see you again uh, like i said whether it be a christmas or in the new year and we'll definitely be taking recommendations soon for what our listeners and our regulars think should be the film we discuss on our 100th episode so maybe get those uh, thinking caps on uh, for that one i'm a bit scared of telling that to live and what she might suggest but <laughs> we'll see uh, craig anything lastly from yourself all I can say is at the end of this call, you will be trapped with me, dear David, and all the powers of hell! To keep up with the latest episodes of Well Good Movies, you can listen to us on all your usual podcast outlets, including Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, and more. Don't forget to follow us, subscribe, and rate us where you can to keep our podcast growing. 
You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WellGoodMovies to keep up with the latest news and highlights from all our episodes, as well as tell us what movies you want to be discussed in the future. So what are you waiting for? Go check out the film we'll be discussing in next time's episode. All I can say is at the end of this call, you will be trapped with me. Oh, mm. Damn it, I messed that up.